You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional audio resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, good to see you this week, Northway Church. Y'all doing all right? Good. Man, it's good to be with y'all. Realize every week we're together is a gift. So, so thankful to be in this place with you. Uh, If you got a Bible, turn with me to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. We're now halfway, over halfway through this book that we've been studying, and uh, Marshall did a great job last week, so grateful for him and uh, excited for this text we're in. You know, uh, again, if you're maybe new to uh, the church and you've never, not familiar with the story of Jonah, Jonah is a minor prophet in the Old Testament, uh, had already served as a faithful prophet of God, serving the king of Israel. And uh, to help secure its borders, God had used him faithfully once before. And then a second time, the word of God comes before Jonah and calls him to go into uh, Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrians, um, to cry out against them. God's word comes to him. And this time, obedient Jonah turns disobedient and runs. We saw that back in chapter one. And that's significant for us as a church as we look back upon this because the truth is, no matter how long you've been a believer, no matter how obedient to Jesus Christ you have been, I promise you there is a day coming, if it's not come already, that eventually the word of God is gonna come before you and you're not gonna like what it has to say. And you will disagree with it. All of us at some point in our Christian faith will encounter things in the word of God, of the word of God, the call upon our lives that we will not agree with. And the question is, is will we in submission because we believe in the goodness and the character of God submit to his will anyway? Or will we cut and run? And for Jonah, The call here for him was to go love his enemies, and that was just something that he could not agree with, with the word of God. And so he took off. Instead of heading 550 miles to the northeast, he sets out 2,500 miles to the west. And God, as we saw in chapter two, is a God of pursuit. He not only loves his enemies, he loves his children. And he pursues Jonah. He comes after Jonah because he wants to teach Jonah a lesson. And this is the lesson of the book of Jonah. It's the lesson for us is that salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation doesn't belong to Jonah. Salvation doesn't belong to you and I. We don't get to choose who gets saved and who doesn't. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He and he alone gets to determine whom his mercy will go towards and whom he will save. And so he pursues Jonah and he uses all of creation to come after Jonah with that lesson. He uses sailors, he uses ships, he uses storms, he uses oceans, he uses fish. Whatever it takes to get Jonah to see that salvation is God's, not his. And there in the depths of Jonah's despair at the bottom of the ocean in the the belly of a fish, Jonah comes face to face with that lesson. And for the first time we saw at the end of chapter two, he responds to the word of the Lord and that he repents. 
and he confesses salvation belongs to the Lord. And then we saw last week, Marshall walked us through chapter, the beginning of chapter three, verses one through four, that Jonah then now obeys the word of God yet again, and he goes into Nineveh the capital city of Assyria, and he preaches what is encapsulated in, a, in Hebrew, a five-word sermon to talk about the judgment of God that is coming upon these Ninevites, this five-word sermon that in these five words you see the judgment of God, but you also see the mercy of God that is ultimately meant to lead to the repentance of God's people for God's glory. And Ultimately, what we're going to see in the text today, starting in verse 5 all the way through verse 10, is really a theology of repentance. What is repentance? What does repentance look like? But to get there, we need to zero in just a bit on those two key terms Marshall pointed out to us last week, that of judgment and mercy that came in the message that he preached Because the truth is, there is no repentance without an understanding and an embracement of both the judgment of God and the mercy of God. They are inseparable. They are two sides to the same coin that lead to the salvation of God and the repentance of God's people to receive it. The judgment and the mercy, and you saw that, remember from last week, in in the little sermon that Jonah preached, which he probably said more than those words, but for the point of this text, the point of what God wants to show us, they're encapsulated in these, what are five Hebrew words, and you see the side of judgment and repentance. When he says concerning judgment, Nineveh will be overthrown. You go let those people know these vile, wicked atrocities that they have been committing against me. I've seen their evil. It has come up before me and they will be overthrown. There is a message of judgment. Jonah did preach a message of judgment. The judgment was coming. And what you're going to see in verse five is that the, the people of Nineveh actually believed it was true. The truth is, again, in order to repent, you have to believe that there is an edict of judgment that has come from God, that has been declared, it is assuredly coming for all those who rebel against God because of their sin. And for many of us, when it comes to preaching a message of judgment, that is not a popular thing for us. We don't like message of judgment. We don't like to hear it, and we certainly don't like to give it. We, we don't want to preach that. And many of us, again, we'll, we'll preach about the forgiveness of God and the grace of God all day long. We love that side of the coin. We love the mercy side of the coin, but we don't like the judgment side. And many of us have come from places where we have got a lot of baggage with that, and that's why we don't like it so much. You maybe have been a part of certain churches where all that you heard about was just the judgment and the wrath of God and that heaped shame over you to try to shame you into repentance. And we all know the kind of baggage that comes with that kind of rhetoric. And we, we don't like that. And we should be concerned about those kind of churches that only speak always to the judgment of God without ever speaking to the mercy and the grace of God. But I would also argue that we need to be equally concerned about the kind of church that would only preach the grace of God and the mercy of God without faithfully talking about the judgment of God. 
We must be faithful to both if we are to faithfully preach a true gospel. And and here's the deal. When it comes to the judgment of God, I want you to think about it this way because I think some of the baggage, at least I know I have, when it comes to the rhetoric of the judgment of God is we, we think of the angry ogre, we think of the abusive father who never saw any good in his people, who only comes after them with wrath and shame. But, but rather than thinking of God's judgment in those terms, I want you to think about the judgment of God in the terms of a just judge who takes justice serious. Maybe more than ever before, we are a culture of justice right now, at least in rhetoric but we are a culture of justice. We want to see injustices in our community, in our city, eradicated. We don't like it when there are people who are under oppressive peoples and injustice is not only tolerated, but celebrated. We don't like that. We want justice. And when we think about the judgment of God, that is how we need to see it, is is God enacting a righteous judgment on a people who deserve it. This is what we see in the scriptures is that we have a holy and just judge who takes his office seriously with a zealous passion to uphold justice and weed out any form of injustice. We don't like to see any sort of judge that has been appointed in our culture who merely winks at sin, who in the midst of a court of law where the evidence is all over an individual because of the crime that they've committed, the atrocities that they committed, the abuses that they have rendered, and to simply see remorse in that courtroom and the judge just to simply let them go free, that would not be justice. It's the reason why there is so much polarization when it came to the Botham Jean trial. Because we saw a beautiful picture of mercy at the end, did we not? Of the younger brother, the compassion that was in there, man, the forgiveness that's granted, man, the love of Jesus that was demonstrated. Like it was a beautiful picture of forgiveness and mercy being granted out. But on the other side of that, there was such rage because what people were crying out for was justice. That another unarmed black man being shot like can the, can the punishment phase fit the crime? And, if, and again, it gets tricky because in our American worldly system of court, justice becomes subjective because we have different opinions of what we think justice is. We even have different interpretations of our own law about what justice is. But we know this. If somebody commits a crime that is heinous, takes the lives of other people, and if that were simply just merely winked at, and a jury or a judge simply just felt bad for him, go, ah, I just don't want you to suffer, never mind, just don't do it again and, and go free. We would not uphold that kind of judge in a court of law. We wouldn't like that kind of jury in a court of law because that's not justice. We want to see the punishment phase match the crime phase. And it's one thing when we're talking about human courts, but it's another thing when we're talking about the justice of God. Because again, in human courts, justice is subjective, but with God, his justice is perfect. His justice is always done out of his character, which is perfectly righteous. And none of us wants to worship a God who just winks at injustice. 
None of us wants to worship a God who simply just gives a free pass to a culture to go sin how they want just as long as they're sorry for it. Like we want a God who is gonna deliver justice, especially on behalf of those who've been abused. And this is the message that Jonah has been given to take to Nineveh. Your evil has come up before me. The victim's blood has cried out and no longer will I tolerate it anymore. Nineveh will be overthrown. I am going to bring justice. But there's mercy in there too. This is what's interesting. In that same state, if you remember from last week, he says, but yet 40 days. It's a statement of mercy within the justice. 40 days laced within God's judgment is always an opportunity for repentance. There's 40 day period right here that gives them time to repent and turn from their atrocities. The number 40 in your Bible is a significant number. It's always used as a number for a period of testing and preparation. Nineveh, you've got 40 days to repent. 40 days before this evil is coming. Now that is the mercy of God that is laced within the judgment of God. And whenever you see this in scripture, judgment, mercy, and repentance are always linked together in the scriptures. It's the beauty of of God's edict upon our culture. Look at this, Jesus, listen to this. Jesus said this in Mark chapter one, verse 14 and following. After John was arrested... Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news of God. And here's what the good news is. He said, the time is fulfilled. The time is up. The the period of waiting, the period of not explicitly dealing with your sin, that period is up. There is now a time of fulfillment of the scriptures that is here, and the kingdom of God is at hand, a kingdom of God that runs counter to the kingdom of man. And therefore, repent and believe in the gospel. Your kingdom is being overthrown now. So in light of that, repent. Judgment is coming, and here is a period in which you can turn unto the Lord for his mercy. Paul said the same thing. Listen to this in Acts chapter 17, verse 30. Paul said the times of ignorance God overlooked. It didn't mean that God dismissed the sins of the past, but there is a waiting period of God. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now, but now, it's a different day. He commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. In other words, justice is coming, but mercy is available. So repent. Now is the time before that judgment comes. Repentance is God's mercy on a people, giving them time to turn unto him. How many of y'all, by the way, are thankful that Jesus Christ did not return 10 years ago? 
Anybody? How many of y'all would have been in a different eternal condition 10 years ago? Aren't you glad for the mercy of God? Aren't you glad there's patience there? But nonetheless, mercy is given here. For the Ninevites, the call that is coming here from God through Jonah to them is a call out of the, the heart of mercy towards them, towards God's enemies. It's from a father to a wayward child. He doesn't want judgment to come upon them. He's pleading out of love for them to relinquish their violence, their sin, and to, re- and to come home. Turn under the living God at this point. In our context, though, what's interesting, the judgment of God, biblically speaking, is not just a future event. Biblically speaking, the judgment of God is actually already here. It's an already but not yet. Just like our salvation is an already, we've received it, but there's still a full consummation of it coming. Biblically speaking, the judgment of God is too an already but not yet. It's here present upon us right now, and yet there is a full consummation that is still to come that's presently on us right now. Yes, indeed, God has fixed a day where a final judgment will come. All evil, all atrocity will be overthrown. But biblically speaking, there is a judgment that's already here right now. Listen to this from Paul in Romans chapter one. Paul says in Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed. Present tense, it's here right now. It is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Paul is saying right here in Romans chapter one, when you see a people in a given culture who are celebrating their sin by calling something holy that God has called unholy. You're not, you don't have to wait for a future judgment to come. It is evidence that that judgment is already there. It is revealed in the carnage that comes from embracing that sin. To that extent, our own sin serves as the judgment of God. The longer you play with it, the more it will destroy your life. It is the judgment of God already being revealed. That's why God's plea is to turn away from that which is lesser so that we might turn towards that which is greater. Remember, we've said this before. John Piper said it as well. God never calls you to turn from a greater thing to a lesser thing. That's what sin does. God is calling us from that lesser thing that is sin, that has deceived us, that we might in faith turn in repentance towards him, the greater thing for our joy. This is what God has done for us. This is all the language of a loving father who pursues his children and his enemies because he loves them. The call to repent is never to shame you for your sin, but to restore you from its consequences. That's what God is calling for in repentance. So I say all of that to fuel what we're gonna see right now in Jonah chapter three, starting in verse five. We we have a message here that Jonah has brought to these people of judgment and mercy in a way that is meant to lead them towards repentance. The question is, what exactly is repentance? 
What does it look like? Enter Jonah chapter three, verse five and following. I'm gonna read the whole text and then I wanna show you three aspects of repentance that we're seeing clearly here. After Jonah preached in verse four, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Verse five, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, he removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. He issued a proclamation and he published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed on drink or water, but let the man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. For who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they had done, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And so he did not do it. Three things that I think you're going to see in this passage of what repentance is all about. Confession, contrition, and correction. You see all three things present in this text. All three things make up a biblical theology of what repentance is. Repentance must include all three of these aspects or is not repentance. Confession of sin, contrition over sin, and correction from sin, and all of them with no conditions here. Let's look at confession of sin first. In verse five, the people of Nineveh believed God. That ultimately is what confession is. The first thing that happens to a people when they are informed about the judgment of God that they deserve and the mercy of God that is available is they confess. They believe God at what he said. Repentance begins in agreement with God about the condition of your nature before him according to him. It's an agreement with his definition of what is right and what is true and what is noble that is in accordance with the character of God and the will of God from the word of God. And it's also agreement with anything that would deviate from it. Speaking forth about your sin in such a way that is in agreement with God to where you can name the sin as God names it and not try to skirt our way around it. Can I just give you a little pro tip for just a moment from one sinner to another, from one rebel to another, from a husband who still can't get this lesson and a dad who's watched their kids really not get this lesson. 
when it comes to repentance, when it comes to confession of sin, be specific. Vagueness in confession is simply evidence that you're still trying to hide and hold on to your sin. Call it what it is. God already knows what it is. You don't have to, you can't fool God. You're just agreeing with what God has already said. So call it what it is. Don't do what I've done in, parent, in, 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 in my marriage when my wife and I are having a fight and we're trying to own our own sin and my confession is simply, I'm so sorry, baby, that you got hurt. That's not confession, is it? <laughs> my wife's giving me the eye right now. That's, she knows. That's not confession. That's not owning my sin. That's playing it off there. Same with my kids. Whenever they get in a fight, we'll bring them in and we'll make them sit face to face with one another. And this is usually about, I don't know, 30 times a day. And you make them sit and face to face with one another and they need to say they're sorry. And oftentimes, I'm sorry. Okay, keep going. I'm sorry for, for what I did. Okay, let's keep going. Let's keep trying with that one a little bit. How about we just name it? Let's just give it a name. You want to give it a name? See, our kids are, are great at hiding it. I'm great at hiding it. You are great at hiding it. We don't want to own it because our pride is so great. But true confession is agreeing with God about the specific nature of what God calls sin. Name the wrong you have done. And not just what is wrong, but name what is right, what God demands, what God expects. Agree with God out loud and explicitly in your confession with where you have deviated from the scriptures. Confession must come first. There must be an agreement. If you cannot agree with God about what he calls sin, then repentance cannot properly take place. But the second thing that comes is contrition. You see that at the end of verse five again, they called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Even the king steps off his throne, covers himself with sackcloth and sits in ashes as he issues this, prop, uh, this proclamation that not only he, but every single citizen of Nineveh is to viscerally repent of their sin. They are to show a visible sign of their contrition. And not only that, he calls for repentance upon the cows. That's, that's crazy right there. When you got to go get the herds and you got to go, hey, you ain't eating today, brothers and sisters. You're going to be laying down in some ashes today. Like this was a marker of the universe, universality of sin. And the explicit links to which this king and these people were going to show their sorrow over what they had done. That agreement with God and confession about the condition of your sin should occur in such a way that it would lead to a mourning over that condition rather than a celebration of it. Y'all, we're in a culture today where we throw parades over what it is we should be lamenting over. We pass laws and legislation over the very things that God sent his son to die for. And we find a way to somehow dismiss it and twist the scriptures that, nah, God really didn't mean it that way. He meant it this way. And when you begin doing that, that is a slippery slope of hermeneutics, of understanding how to interpret scripture, where you'll just end up justifying everything 
to accommodate to your own kingdom rather than the kingdom of God. For the truly repentant, there should be a visceral response to the knowledge that we have wronged God and grieved his heart for going against his design for human flourishing. The king physically steps off his throne because he recognizes a greater king has spoken. Sackcloth in the ancient Near East was a visual and public sign of their agreement with God about their condition. Sackcloth was the dress of a slave or the impoverished. It was a customary expression to signify humility and repentance. It was their way of saying, we are impoverished before the living God and we are slaves to his mercy. That's what sackcloth and ashes were communicating. Understand this. True contrition knows nothing of indifference towards sin. In the West, we are awful when it comes to a public display of our emotion. Look in the Middle East, look in Africa. There are people that knows what it's like to publicly lament. We're starting to get a little better at it in our culture when it comes to other people's sin, but we're horrible when it comes to our own. And this is me confessing. These people here, they are broken over their sin. Remember what these people had done. These were the people that slaughtered innocents, that murdered men, that raped women, that took the heads of infants and dashed them upon the rocks in their raids. These were people who would cut off one arm and both legs of their enemy as they were dying and would leave one arm so they could shake their hand as mockery. And these people here are now broken over what they have done. And so after confession and after contrition, then comes correction. A turning from one's sin. And you see this at the end of verse 8. When he says, the king says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Repentance is not just confessing and feeling bad. Sympathy and empathy with God is not repentance. There must be a turning from one thing in order to follow another. For the Ninevites, it meant stopping the violence that they were notoriously known for. No more murdering women. No more raping uh, women and murdering the men and slaughtering the children. No more hosting parades with the heads of family members being carried by other family members on poles. No more mocking the Israelites' God. Repentance here requires a reversal of heart, mind, and action concerning rebellion to the decrees of God. And it includes adopting what those decrees of God actually are. It's ceasing from what is evil and embracing what is good. And notice in verse nine, they go to God with 100%, absolutely no conditions here. They say, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Notice in this text, there's no negotiation with God here. There's no bargaining chips that are on the table with God. There's no conditions. They aren't repenting simply because they got caught and are afraid that they're gonna lose their phone or their car keys for a week. Nowhere 
Has God promised even that if they repent, they would be spared? All that was said was 40 days from now, judgment's coming. There's mercy in there, but there's no promise that God has to relent from his anger towards them. Yet they respond, who knows? In other words, it's up to God whether he wants to show us mercy or not. It's his prerogative. All we know is that if he chooses to pour out his wrath on us in 40 days, he is just in doing it. But we will repent regardless because he is worthy of our repentance. And who knows? Maybe, just maybe, he will extend his mercy. Repentance here is not manipulation, but rather it is submission to God's will and God's mercy. And in verse 10, notice God's response. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Even though God would have been totally just to destroy them right then. He is the God of a thousand second first times. He is the God of second, third, fourth chances. He loves to show his mercy. It's a beautiful picture of the mercy of God to forgive in all of our lives. Still an unanswered question in here though. Remember earlier we talked about a judge that would just simply see the remorse of a people and then let them go, that's not true justice. If you're an astute reader right here, you gotta be wondering, where is the true justice of God? Where does God actually deal with the sin of the Ninevites? Because all he does here is relent of his justice and extends mercy. Where is that justice? I'm so glad you asked. The truth is, is it's coming God doesn't just wink at sin. He does require full justice of sin. It must be met. There is no forgiveness apart from judgment. They both must be rendered in order to keep the character and the love of God. And so it's coming. The reason that God can grant mercy right here to these evildoers is because there is a day coming when their sins will be laid upon somebody else. Do me a favor real quick in the few minutes we have. Flip over to your right. Flip to Romans chapter three. You ever wonder how Old Testament saints get saved before Jesus came? I'm gonna show you your text right here. Romans chapter three. Paul is talking about the righteousness of God that we need, that we don't have, and it's a righteousness that can only come through faith in Jesus Christ. It's the only way a person can be saved is by believing in Jesus Christ and his payment for our sins. And he describes it here, again, the condition of our sin in verse 23 of chapter three, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But we are all justified, this is how we're saved, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So you are saved by God's grace. You are saved out of God's mercy. But what about his judgment? What about his just wrath? You see it right here in verse 25. This Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation. A propitiation is a big fancy word that means 
one who absorbs the wrath of God that you deserved. Jesus took the wrath of God and appeased his wrath. He was a propitiation by his blood that we receive by faith. And all of this was to show God's righteousness. And listen to what he says right here. Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. You know what that line right there is speaking to? That is every sinner that has ever come before Jesus came to the cross, including the Ninevites. He passed over their sins. It didn't mean he winked at it. It didn't mean he wasn't just. It means there was a day when the justice was coming. And God could be patient because he wants people to be saved, not incinerated. But there is a justice that's coming, and it came in Jesus Christ. He tells us why he passed over in verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, the time when Jesus would come, so that he might be the just and the justifier. Just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How in the world can God be just and justify you as a sinner at the same time? It's the greatest enigma in the entire Bible. You know that? Is how can God remain perfectly holy and punish sin absolutely and not just wink at it and let it go and at the same time, Show his love towards you and I who are sinners, who deserve that wrath. How can he free us? Many may remember, I shared this illustration months and months ago, and many have heard it before. Josh McDowell shared it from a court case back in the 70s. You remember this story? When a young girl was given a traffic ticket and wanted to go fight it in court, and so she did, and the media got wind of this because it turned out the judge of that circuit court was her dad pre-nepotism laws right here. And they wanted to know, what are you going to do? This girl's going to go fight a traffic ticket against her dad. And she stands in this courtroom and she pleads her case and she is guilty as all get out. Evidence is clear. And this is the sad tragedy because if she's found guilty, it's either a $200 fine or she's spending time in jail and her daddy knows that she can't pay it. She doesn't have enough money to pay this. She's going to jail. And everybody in that courtroom is looking at, her, at the judge, not as a dad, but they're looking at him as a judge. You were appointed to uphold the law. You better punish this girl. You better not feel sorry for her and just let her go. That's not justice. And sure enough, in that moment, that judge slams the gavel down and says, guilty, $200 or go to jail. And you're just like, oh my goodness, just the cruelty. Like, oh, but you're supposed to be our dad. He's a great judge, but you're an awful dad. Like, what's going on? And then if you remember what happened in that moment is the judge stood up from his bench, took off his robe, walked down the stairs to her level and pulled out a checkbook and wrote the fine for her, paid it. In that moment, as both a judge who has to be just and a father who loves his wayward daughter. He becomes both just and the justifier. And that is exactly what God has done for us. We trust in a just God. We pray for his justice. There is a day coming when he will enact his justice on all sin 
that there ever was. And so many of us stand up and go, yes and amen. Judge sin, God. Go after the injustices. And that's great until I were to ask you, can we begin with you? And you go, oh, no, I don't, no, I don't want that. Like, we love justice out there. We just don't love it on us. But that's the beauty of what God did. Only at the cross is the justice of God and the love of God perfectly met. The judgment of God and the mercy of God put fully on display for your sin. Oh, church, I don't know what the Spirit's doing in this room right now, but I know this. As individuals in this room, if there is any sin that is being protected and hidden in your life right now, God is calling you to turn from it. Don't try to hide it. Don't try to just press it down. Bring it into the light. He already knows what it is. Agree with God. Confess your sin. Mourn over that sin and turn from that sin. Why? Because his mercy is available to you. It's available to you. This is the good news that comes out of the book of Jonah that is still ringing true for us today is a God of justice and a God of love has provided it both for your sin that you might be saved. Amen? It's the reason why, by the way, don't turn there. We don't even need to look there. But later on in Matthew 12, Jesus is gonna say, he's gonna preach about the Jonah and how the Ninevites repented and he's gonna say, but I tell you something greater is here today. Jesus is the greater. May we turn to him. In light of that, I'd love for our band to come back up here and I'd love for us to move towards a time of communion together because there's no greater opportunity for us to visibly remind ourselves of what it is that God has provided for us in Jesus Christ at the cross. If you're a member helping with communion, if you can go ahead and make your way to the back, grab the elements, make your way to those stations. Here's the deal. Communion is a reminder that Jesus ordained and set forth for the church that we take the privilege of doing every week at Northway because we never want to have drift from who God is and what he has done for us through Jesus Christ. I don't know where you've run from. I don't know where you're running right now. I don't know what it is you're hiding and holding on to, but I can tell you this, there is a mercy that is available to you right now in Jesus Christ. You don't have to live in shame. You don't have to live in condemnation because one has already been condemned on your behalf. One has already taken the shame in your place and he has borne it for you, Jesus Christ. So you don't have to anymore. The justice that was meant to be rendered for your sin was put upon Jesus Christ. And he who was on that cross shed his blood that you might be forgiven that you might be cleansed. Not that you would spend the rest of your days playing with sin and hiding it anymore, but to come free. Be liberated. We talked about it before, that old game you used to play of hide and seek in the old English version where you would, somebody would call out, Ali, Ali, oxen free. Doesn't mean set the oxen free. It means you've been liberated. You don't have to hide anymore. You can come out. You can come out wherever you are because a greater grace has been met for you in Jesus Christ. Jesus, the night that he was betrayed, held up these elements that we're about to partake in. He held up the bread and he said, this bread is my body that has been broken for you. 
take this in remembrance of me. It's a remembrance that there was a penalty for sin, that we needed a substitute and Jesus came. He went through the affliction for you. Then he held up the cup and he said, this cup is my blood, the blood of a new covenant, which has been poured out for the forgiveness of your sin. It's a reminder that all your sin has been cleansed by Jesus Christ. It's freed you. You can step off that performance treadmill, be liberated. Church, might we be a church that repents? I don't ever want us to continue to hide our sin, both as individuals and as a church. His grace is sufficient for us. So in light of that grace, let's be a people of holiness. Let's walk in the holiness that he has already given us that doesn't have to be earned or deserved. If you aren't a believer in here, if you've yet to put your faith in Jesus Christ, so glad you're here. I'd ask you to hold off though on this meal that we're about to partake in because this meal represents what we hold to as Christians of the the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. Instead, we'd ask you to consider the person and work of Jesus that your heart might turn to him in salvific repentance, that you would forsake your idols and turn to the living God who has offered his son for your salvation and be saved. To everyone who has claimed that's already happened for you, that your trust is in Jesus Christ, we invite you to the proverbial table. As we've been doing the past several weeks here, it's a bit ordered chaos. And so trust the ushers that are in your aisle. They will dismiss you row by row so that we can move up here in a timely manner. You grab the bread, dip it in the juice and be reminded of Christ's grace for you. Let's pray. God, thank you for an entire city of Nineveh that repented because they believed in who you were and the edict of your word. I pray, Lord, for the same thing for the city of Dallas. Oh God, what it may be like to see an entire city on their face in repentance, turning to the living God, crying out for his mercy, knowing that it has been given in Jesus Christ. That's what we pray for. But God, we as a deliverer of that news cannot impart to the city of Dallas what we do not possess. So help us, oh God, in light of your mercy, to walk in the light, to be a people of repentance with full confession, full contrition, and full turning away from and correction of that sin. Because your grace is sufficient for us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.